Welcome to Modern Figures Podcast, a show where we're elevating the voices of Black women in computing to inspire the next generation of the advanced technology workforce. We're your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Waysom and Dr. Kyla McMullen. This podcast is sponsored by the National Center for Women in Information Technology, or NCWIT. NCWIT is a nonprofit organization that convenes, equips, and unites change leader organizations to increase participation of all women in the field of computing. Kyla and I are representatives of the Institute for African American Mentoring and Computing Sciences, or IMCS, which serves as a national resource for Black and African American students, faculty, and industry professionals in computing. Special thanks goes to our listeners who contribute to the podcast by supporting our online store, which you can find at our website, www.modernfigurespodcast.com. All right, so today we have a special guest with us in the stew. We have Dr. Nikki Washington. She is a computer science professor. She's an author, a researcher, a speaker, advocate, entrepreneur. What doesn't she do? Hey, Nikki. Hey, girl. Hey. Hey, girl. Hey. So Nikki is a researcher who researches networking, modeling, simulation, as well as computer science education as well. She got her BS from Johnson C. Smith University, her master's and PhD from the North Carolina State University. She was the first, mm. the first. We've heard the first black woman, the first black person, period. First black woman. First black woman yep. to earn a PhD in computer science at NC State, which is amazing. And if she wasn't already cool enough, she was also the first black female faculty member at Howard University in the Department of Computer Science. What? She has a million accolades. Thank you. <laughs> wow. A million.com. She also has a book that was published in 2018 called Unapologetically Dope Lessons for Black Women and Girls on Surviving and Thriving in the Tech Field. I think we all need that. Mm. Uh, I Let's need jump too. into that. Right. How about that? <laughs> I like to call her the chief, the chief edge gatherer across the internet. <laughs> she be snatching edges it's from true. all across the internet. I try. <laughs> she has over 20 years of experience in industry and higher ed. She has helped with the Google and residence program with the creation and formulation of that. Um, she also was a writer for the K-12 CS framework and she's done digital lit- literacy standards for the South Carolina K-12 computer science. Like She's done a lot, a whole, whole lot and we're happy she's here. Yes, she took time out of her busy schedule to be with us. Thank y'all for having me. We are so yeah. happy you traveled down here today on your whirlwind adventure to Gainesville, yes. Florida. Yes. Low red. <laughs> <laughs> so Nikki, we, we like to start off talking about your early influences. So okay. could you talk about what it was like for you growing up? So I usually tell people that my experience growing up was very unique. Um, I was born and raised in Durham, North Carolina. So for people who don't know, that's home to the Research Triangle Park area. Uh, I have Duke University, North Carolina Central University right down the street, North Carolina State, Shaw, St. Aug, all in within about a 20-mile radius. And my mom was a math major in college and a programmer for 34 years at IBM. So I, I tell everyone she was my representation of black girl magic before that was a thing. And growing up with her in the house and working with IBM, I always had access to computers. So every few years we got a new PC. She would let me start out by putting it together, loading the software back when every piece of software had to be loaded. Right. (laughs) And from there, I started taking programming classes probably around eighth grade. And 
The other great thing about my mom is that when she started at IBM, there were about three black men who started with her. One of them was my godfather, who also was a math major with her in college. And there were all of these other individuals who were family friends Mm -hmm. that they all became really good friends. But they were also the parents of my friends growing up. So it was a unique situation where I was surrounded by these black engineers and doctors and attorneys and educators. They were in my neighborhood. They went to church. So I always saw them as part of my village. So we were always taught that there was no limit. Anything we wanted to do, we could. We just had to put our all into it. And so for that reason, when I got to high school, we were always competing with each other. So the black students really didn't even think about the non-black students, even though Mm. our high school started out predominantly white. We were so centered in on each other as competition that we all just kind of rose to the top of our class. And when I graduated, I actually thought about majoring in advertising. So I had no, no interest in computer science. And I don't know why it was advertising, but I think it was the idea of, you know, being in New York City, being Mm -hmm. in business. And I was going to major in computer science because I didn't even take AP computer science in high school. I took programming courses, but that's how set I was not to major in computer science. Mm -hmm. And then I got to Johnson C. Smith and my intro to programming professor, Dr. Nagib Atiyah, convinced me to change my major to computer science and minor in business. And then I just eventually dropped the minor altogether. Wow. Yeah. So I had a rich introduction, probably not the norm for a lot of people. Not at all. You grew up in Wakanda. Like, that is... (laughs) Kind of. Adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wakanda adjacent. What's that called? (laughs) Yeah, I'm not Apparently Durham. Yeah. (laughs) Very cool. Uh, So high school and college, were those things, did they come easy for you? Um, they did in certain instances, uh, high school was very challenging. So my high school had a lot of teachers who were graduates of the local schools. They Mm -hmm. maybe at one point were faculty or adjuncts and then they went to the high school level. So they pushed us really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, we were exposed to a lot of things very early. I remember, especially dealing with my English teachers, they were teaching us like we were college freshmen. So writing was critical. Being able to write well was an expectation. And I remember getting ripped to shreds with red (laughs) ink until and feeling like, oh, I finally made it. Once my professors, I'm sorry, my teachers, that's how crazy it was. Right, it felt like Once my teachers, right, finally (laughs) approved of my writing. But we were reading things like the Iliad and, Uh, Dante's Inferno and As I Lay Dying and The Color Purple, all of these books that were forcing us to think critically, but also be able to write an argumentative essay as well. Hmm. So by the time I got to college, I was prepared for rigorous work. I just, um, for me, it was a point of woosah, like breathing easy. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like I said, my high school was predominantly white. Most of my K-12 experience had been in predominantly white environments, even though I grew up in a neighborhood that was very diverse. Mm -hmm. And so being a K-12 student in that kind of environment, of course, you deal with a lot of bias and racism. And so I spent a lot of time, as did my mom, 
fighting a lot of battles mm. with teachers who thought because I was this opinionated black girl and mm. I played sports so nobody could figure me out like she's smart but she plays sports and right. she's got a mouth so what's going on here <laughs> right um you're like yes I'm all of the above right and so <laughs> my mom change at all because I feel like yeah. it hasn't <laughs> <laughs> not really <laughs> I don't play sports anymore I'll okay okay yeah <laughs> but my mom spent a lot of time fighting those battles for me. And so I remember only applying to HBCUs hmm. and being so excited. And my fir- my favorite teacher was my ninth grade honors English teacher. And I remember coming to her and telling her, oh, I got accepted into all of these schools. And I'm reading them out. And it was Hampton and Florida A&M and A&T. And I said, and Smith. Mm-hmm. Well, she thought I meant Smith College, not Johnson C. Smith. Mm. So it was, oh, Nikki, this is great. Smith College, that's going to be a great school. And I said, no, Johnson C. Smith and Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And her face instantly changed. And it was, oh, Nikki, like, you need to go to a good school, like Ooh, Brown, what? Duke, Carolina even. And I looked at her so defiantly and I said, I don't want to go to a white school. Right. <laughs> and she didn't know how to deal with that because she didn't understand how a smart black student why they would want to go to an HBCU. But I was Mm. raised around all of these black men and women who were HBCU alum. I spent all of my summers between North Carolina Central's campus, Mm A&T, Johnson C. Smith. So for me, when I got to college, it was, whew, thank you. (laughs) I just felt like, right. I didn't have to worry about anything but the work. Mm. And that was so refreshing um, just to have those four years where I only focused on being the best academically and not having to prove my worth. Yeah. And all those other unnecessary battles that happen. Absolutely. Because everyone from the people who worked in the post office to the professors, they all wanted you to succeed. Mm. And that was so different from my experience in K-12. I get that. My K-12 experience is not super shiny and rosy, but um, I was... As I was listening, I was thinking about back to the person who encouraged you to switch your major. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me like that was not a black person. No. He was Egyptian, hmm. native. Um, and he was an excellent professor. And it was just a spark that he saw because certain things came easy to me. And he kept saying, why are you so much better at this than some of the other students? And this is an intro programming course. And I said, well, you know, I took programming in high school. I just didn't take AP computer science. And that's when he said, why don't you consider changing your major? Because computer science is going to be a huge field in the next few years. And this was 96. Mm hmm. And he kept saying, I think you'll do so much better in computer science than you would in business. So just think about it. And I said, uh, all right, why not? And so everything for me was someone kind of presenting a new opportunity to me and me saying, eh, all right, why not? I guess I'll right. try it. <laughs> right. What can it hurt? And then he left the next year. Wow. Right. So he left and I was devastated. But his brother was the department chair. Okay. And so his brother, Dr. Magdi Atiyah, kind of took me under his wing for the next three years and guided me. And Dr. Atiyah, up until the time he died in 2015, was probably the closest thing to another father to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so sweet. Oh. Yeah. So I'm assuming that he was your mentor who was like your champion, like the person who you could go to at any time. And- he was. Yeah. He was, as well as the university president, Dr. Dorothy Hauser yancey um, To this day, she has definitely been one of my strongest advocates. Uh, she was the person who pushed me to pursue a PhD because I didn't mm-hmm. even want to do it. Mm-hmm. And 
I remember my senior year of college, she called my house during <laughs> fall break and said, Nikki, I'm nominating you for this fellowship. And it's the David and Packer Lucille Fellowship. It's great. It's $100,000 over five years. It's going to be great. Send me your resume. And I up. said, yeah, <laughs> thanks, Dr. Yancey, but I don't really want to do a PhD. I just kind of want to do a master's. I'm not sure what I want to do. I know I just don't want to work. <laughs> and she literally said to me, Nikki, I don't care what you want to do. I'm nominating you. Send me your resume. The worst they can do is say, you got it, and then you have to turn it down. Right. So I said, yes, ma'am. And the rest was history. That's and like it was, again, perfect. one of those situations where it was, why not? Right? What's it going to hurt? All right. So you were basically hoodwinked into going to grad school. Yeah. So what was that like at NC State? What was grad school like? State was high school 2.0 <laughs> in terms of the things I was dealing with that were non-technical. Um, state, for me, was interesting. It taught me a lot about how I learn and how I work best, which is what my advisor told me would happen. Um, but it was unique. You know, I went into it thinking, oh, here I am. You know, all I have to do is do the work, find a great advisor, and everything's going to be fine. And, yeah, that didn't always happen. <laughs> so the first yeah. issue was trying to find an advisor. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I started early because, you know, 5P, try to make sure I'm prepared. Well, you don't come in having an advisor right. in that case. Right. Then. Okay. No, no, no. And so, and because I came in with funding, I really didn't have an advisor because no one had to worry about funding mm -hmm. me. Um, That's always a, it's a it's blessing a and, a and a curse, right? Yeah. So, but state had this orientation class for grad students where all of the faculty came and talked about their research. Oh, cool. And for some reason I wanted to networking. I don't even know why again, um, <laughs> but I remember wanting to talk to this specific professor who was an Asian American man. And I went and talked to him, sat down, brought my resume, and he told me in no uncertain terms that, one, he'd never heard of Johnson C. Smith University, mm. even though it was two and a half hours down the road, Ooh. and that he did not think I could cut it as one of his graduate students. So, no thank you. What? And I remember being like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Mm. Got it. Duly noted. And it happened that my advisor that I found, Dr. Harry Perils, he also did networking. I sat down with him and he said, you know, he explained to me some of the work he was doing in optical networks. And do you have any experience in that? And I said, no. And he said, well, let's do this. Let's take a semester and I'll point you in some directions, everything you can read, find out about it. Let's talk about it and see where you are coming back. And I made it a point to go above and beyond so that when I met with that man every week, he knew that I was ready and I was trying to get myself prepared. And he took mm -hmm. me on um, and took a chance on me. He told me, you know, I was his first black student. Um, hmm. And we had a great relationship because he taught me so much about myself, right? My advisor is super laid back. Mm -hmm. So much so that by the time I started moving into just research, he would disappear. He's an avid sailor. <laughs> and he would email me like, yeah, I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks sailing. And I'm not going to have access to my phone unless it's emergency. So, you know, if you need anything, I'll just, it's going to have to wait till I get back. And I look out, I, I would sit in his office like, what do you mean when you get back? Like, right. I'm still here working. That's not right. how this works. And he just, he was like, Nikki, just relax. It's Aww. not that serious. Mm. And so he taught me to start breaking when he broke. Mm -hmm. not for two weeks, but at least I knew that it was okay to stop sometimes because I would get so worked up in a frenzy yeah. that I would drive myself crazy. Um, so it was great to be with him. The student side was interesting because I was 
one of the only. There was another black woman who was there. She started the year before me, Carabelle. Mm-hmm. She finished uh, the year after me. Mm-hmm. And we were the only two black women in the PhD program. Wow. And then we ended up going in different directions with research. So our classes, uh, we only had maybe one class together. Mm-hmm. And so I was the only one. But to me, I wasn't as worried about that because I was used to it from high school. I kind of knew yeah. what to expect. Um, so I was that person that was sitting in front of the class, making sure that I asked questions if I didn't understand something. I was at office hours, so my professors knew me by name. Um and I was joking with Kyla earlier, you know, one of my hardest classes was my architecture class. And I remember bombing the midterm and going to the professor and him kind of giving me strategies. But he mm-hmm. recorded the lectures because there was a video based section. Now, this was probably 2001. So, of course, you had to go to watch the VHS in the library. Right. There's only one copy. So I would go at like 2 a.m. The couple of times I took no dose and... <laughs> You know, it was just wired up for 12 hours. But (laughs) I would pour over this material until it just clicked so much so Mm -hmm. that the next time I ended up finishing the course with a B. And he was just like, I'm so impressed by how much effort you put into this. But I told him also, I'm used now, I'm used to working by myself. So there was marginalization happening, but I kind of filtered it out because I was good anyway. Um, Yeah, and you mentioned earlier, too, that you're an only child, basically. Mm -hmm. So. You just have this, right? I'm just going to do it by myself. Mentality. Yeah. Right. And it was interesting because I remember one class, my algorithms course, where you actually had to work with students. And be- because, of course, most of the students were Asian, mm-hmm. then there were only a few white guys who didn't have anyone to work with as well. And so we all ended up in <laughs> yeah. this group, right? That's how it always right. happens. <laughs> and we have this programming set of problems. And I remember... I came to the group with solutions. Mm -hmm. They're struggling to work on them. And I remember saying, I've got the solution over here. This is how it works. And they just Mm -hmm. kept going like... Like you weren't even talking. And I said, I said I have the solution. I know how it works. And finally, I just said, you know what? I'm out. And I emailed the professor and said, look, I'm having issues with my group. I'm not going to do this. Can I just submit this myself? Because I'm not going to keep trying to prove my worth to people who don't want me there. And it was a white woman. And she said, by all means, go ahead. If you're confident, do it. Wow. Wow. Right. I mean, that's awesome. Kudos to her because usually people are like, no, there's a requirement that you work on a team. Right. But if the team isn't working with me. Right. What are, you, what are you supposed to do? Right. Right. Trying to make these people, like you said, not trying to right. force yourself into this. And kudos to you for doing a whole team's worth of work <laughs> right. by yourself because you're like, look, I would rather do this on my own right. than have to fight through this. So yeah. I want to circle back. You mentioned you chose networking, but you don't know why. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no clue still. Th- there's <laughs> none. I can't tell you. For some reason, I, I thought that maybe that made the most sense at the time. Okay. And I don't know why. I, I still can't explain that. But isn't your dissertation topic the most important thing you'll ever choose in your life? Yeah, so they say, right? Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, people don't understand. Sometimes you just pick something that you, you can do <laughs> and get out. That part. <laughs> and so I chose the research that my advisor was working on. Okay. So for me, I enjoyed my advisor mm. and I wanted to work with him. So yeah. whatever he was working on was what I was working on. Yeah. That's my um, story too. Right. And, yep. and because he, it he told me, mine. yeah, <laughs> he said, look, I don't keep students here to kind of run them into the ground with a paper mill. I like to have my students out of here in five to six years. Yep. So, you know, if you do the work, I guarantee you that you can get out of here. And I said, let's do it. 
I've yep. got five years worth of money. When five Sign years is up. up, I'm out. One way or the other. <laughs> so no, I was just saying that's really good that you all had that same vision in right. mind because a lot, not a lot of no. professors have that same vision with you or share the vision. No. Yeah, he was amazing. Um, looking back, and we get together now, like, every time I go home, and he'll laugh about it. Like, yeah, you were so, you were just so wound up. And I couldn't understand sometimes why. It was just like you were so nervous about everything. And I kept saying, but you could you didn't understand it because I was in a this can't fail mm. kind of mentality, yeah. right? I was being told, especially every time I would freak out, like when I failed that <laughs> midterm and I called home crying and my mother was just like, are you done? <laughs> okay, because you took these people's money <laughs> and so you need to get yourself together, cry it out tonight, and then you're going to do what you need to do to pass this class and finish because you finish what you start. Yeah. And that was that. So she clearly is the person who gave you the determination to get through. Yeah. Right? Yeah. My dad was kind of the person I could call and cry. And he's like, Oh, come on, let's go to dinner. Aww. And you know, my mother was like, all right, we're not going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> None of this crying stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. I feel like both my parents are that way too. Mm-hmm. Like those two personalities mm-hmm. is, is pretty much dead on with them. But my mom, she tried. She, she did. She, we're just not warm and fuzzy people. My mom and I, <laughs> we're just not. Um, so That's funny. You knew you were isolated. Yep. You had someone in front of you, and then you were just like, I'm going to outwork you. Absolutely. And I think that the other thing that helped me was my cohort. So that fellowship gave me a community, even though we oh, weren't yeah. together. Oh, that's so we good. were all HBCU grads. We were all doing PhDs in STEM, but we were spread out across the country. Mm, so oh, wow. we gathered every year, every summer in Monterey for a week, which was dope. Ooh, we look back cool. at it now like, how dope cool. was that? We were so basic at the time. We didn't even understand <laughs> what was going on. And um, so we could express our concerns. And, and I learned that I'm not the only one going through this. Yeah. So we could lean on each other. It helped that I was in Raleigh. That was 20 minutes from home because I still had my parents there. And I actually had some other church members. And I'd interned with inroads as an undergrad. So a couple of people mm-hmm. who'd left inroads were now working at State. So I had all of these pockets of people who I could go to as my village. Um, and then the other thing that fueled me was not only that one professor, but it was also... I'm laughing to say this. Um, It was also this young woman that my advisor took on as well. And Mm -hmm. she was really upset and bothered by the fact somehow that I had all of this fellowship money and she had a TA. And she Mm. made a point about it one time. And I said, oh, she's not going to finish before me. So for me, everything, (laughs) this was a competition, right? I'm going to show you. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to finish before me. So I had all of these fuels to my fire that kept me going in those moments. Yeah, because this couldn't fail. Absolutely. And also, I'm going to do it faster than you. Not that only part. will I not fail, I will do this quicker than you as Yes, well. ma'am. So did you know you were going to be the first black female graduate? Not until everyone had already signed off on my dissertation. Wow. And then it just so happened as I was preparing for graduation, one of the uh, sorrows in the grad chapter in Durham just happened to ask, like, so how many black women have graduated before you? And I said, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. Let me go ask. Mm. And when I talked to uh, the people in the department, they're like, actually, nobody. Wow. There was one black man before me. Wow. And that was it. 
That's crazy. How crazy yeah. is it? And that was 2005. Yeah. They don't be telling y'all nothing. Nope. I had to ask too, like, because I was like, I ne- I was looking for it. I was like, I need a mentor. I was like, let me talk to yeah. a black woman who's been through this foolishness. And then same sort of thing. They're like, oh, actually, there hasn't been one. So, <laughs> yeah. But I had it on my back the whole time. And it was like, oh, if she finishes, she'll be the first. So it was always this constant, oh, I got to finish yeah. this. <laughs> and it's always even if you weren't the first because for me in my head always I was like I can't screw this up because they're never going to take mm-hmm. another HBCU grad yep if I don't finish then this is going to be it for everybody so I had this which huge is ridiculous yeah. right it's but you feel like that at the right. time you're like okay I'm going to mess up everyone else and then your advisor is like oh I don't know why you were so wound up like he didn't understand mm-hmm. all the extra layers they of don't. stuff on top of your academic experience Mm-hmm. And they still don't. Once you go yeah. into the no. workforce, none of that changes, no. right? No. He tries to, and he's Greek. And sometimes he's like, oh, Nikki, you know, everybody's just racist like that. The Greeks <laughs> are really racist like that. So when I keep saying, it's not the same. Right. What you're talking about. Right. right. I keep trying to tell him. And then finally, I just say, we have to agree to disagree. Because mm-hmm. I can't. Mm-hmm. But he, at least, even if he doesn't agree, he won't try to diminish my experience, which is what I appreciate from him. Yeah. Because as it came time for me to do my defense, well, it's now I have to pick a committee. Right. And I remember hearing all these horror stories during these summers in Monterey. And <laughs> and then fast forward, probably in my third year, I ended up getting another fellowship through um, NASA, the Harriet G. Jenkins Fellowship. And so there's another cohort of friends, some of us who overlapped. And now we have like 50 to 60 of us who are sharing these stories in different places. So one place we're going for a week every summer in Monterey. The other times we're heading for a week at different NASA sites. So we go to D.C. We get on the launch pad in Cape Canaveral. It was so dope. This was before the gram. Like you could have been stunned for the gram. (laughs) On the launch pad, taking pictures, right? right? Just We didn't know. Um, So it's time to pick my committee. And... I started thinking strategically, like, who's going to get me out of here? Because I remember one of my peers complaining about battles between people on his committee who didn't get promoted. And so they're taking Mm. it out on his advisor by taking it out on him. So I went to one, my favorite professor in the College of Engineering, but he was actually an electrical and computer engineering professor. But he was also my advisor's drinking buddy. (laughs) So I asked him. He agreed. Um, There was a junior faculty member in the department who I knew needed tenure and promotion. And then there was also another professor in electrical and computer engineering who was Greek as well. And my advisor was kind of like his mentor. Okay. So Mm. I thought about those three and I presented those. And my advisor says, well, what about professor so-and-so, the one who told me he didn't want to work with me? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, absolutely not. And here's why. And so I relayed the whole story to him. And he says, oh, well, Nikki, you know, he's a jerk to everybody. Um, but I understand what you're saying. And so we won't deal with him. Don't worry about it. Oh, that's good. Right. And so it was really great that I, I felt comfortable enough to share with him. Like, I don't want this person on my committee because he yeah. was very blatantly against working with me. Right. And he got it. And was like, don't worry about it. That's perfect. It's yeah. kind of amazing how, like, there are so many people – on college campuses who are like that though Absolutely. who who will literally to your face tell you they don't want anything to do with you yeah. like you don't belong here yeah. mm-hmm. you know they would never put it in writing right Absolutely but not. like to say it to your face they'll do that and then people will wonder well why do we have a diversity problem that. right or what's going on that we can't retain 
this demographic of people. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like call your own people in. That, and like I tell people all the time, you know, we're doing all of this work allegedly on the industry side. But why are we doing it there? It's too late in the pipeline. It is. Because these people who graduate in the majority demographics where, let's be honest, the majority demographic in tech is white and Asian men. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if they graduate and enter environments that mirror exactly what they saw as undergrads, why are they going to try to fix something that to them doesn't look broken? Exactly. And so at the same point, we're now working on all these K-12 initiatives, and that's great. But what happens when those students who are taking all of these computer science classes enter those universities and nobody's fixing the problem there? Yep. Like, we're wasting time looking at the tech industry. They need to be doing things, mm-hmm. but they need to also be looking back and holding higher ed accountable because yeah. not only do we have that issue with students, but like we just talked about, we have it with faculty. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there's no accountability. And then you add in tenure, which is something where I don't have to be a proponent of inclusion if I don't right. want to because I have this guaranteed job. So Right. And this isn't just happening at PWIs. This is also at HBCUs. Because yeah. let's be honest, a lot of our computing departments at HBCUs are not the same demographic as the students they serve. And it's because we can't, we just, we don't have the numbers all the time. Can't graduate yeah. us right. At, right. at that rate. All right. There's only a few, right? Howard did a great job. Um, Spellman. Those are probably the main two that I can think of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You guys down yeah. here probably have more black faculty in computer science than a lot of the other HBCU yeah. departments. And that's crazy. It's ridiculous, but it's always a concerted effort. Like there's always, it's not like, oh, we're just going right. to put out a random search and magically this thing happens. Right. Like there has to be intentionality right. around it. And, and not funding. everyone wants to be intentional to do it. Right. You have right. to put your and money where your support. mouth is. You can't say, oh, we want faculty, but we're going to under-resource them. We're going to not give them a lab. We're going to drag right. our feet with everything. Like, you have to put support in that area. Absolutely. That's the issue now with Congress not passing uh, legislation. Mm. HBCUs are going to lose, lose yeah. so much funding. I heard about, like, that. They have no idea the ramifications no. of that down the line. They don't. I just read an article in my email coming down here where at Smith alone, Johnson C. Smith, that is. Um, the president said that if that budget is not passed or that act isn't passed, that they will lose about $750,000. Oh, my gosh. That's a lot of money for an HBCU. That's right. a blink, a drop in a bucket for a major institution. It is, but, right. you know, it's a private college. That's yeah. awful. How many students does that affect? How many faculty does that affect or yeah. staff? Okay. So I, I want to unload all of that. Sorry. And <laughs> and I feel like we can like so I know you clearly you passed you became right. the first you went on and went into industry I did for mm-hmm. a year okay and then from industry you were like this ain't it yeah so and and that was another situation of bias presenting itself as well as an opportunity presenting itself and me saying eh, why not mm. so. I took a job with the Aerospace Corporation. They're a federally funded research and development mm-hmm. center in Northern Virginia. And I started there. I was, and to be clear, the Aerospace Corporation is based out of L.A., El Segundo. And so the largest other branch was Northern Virginia, of course. And because we did classified research for the government, everyone there had to have a minimum of a master's degree. So I was the only black woman in my department. 
I was the only woman in my department with a PhD. Wow. With two other white women. So you already know how that went. That's a whole nother dynamic. And yeah, it was interesting. And dealing with microaggressions from a couple of them, um, which got checked very quickly because what (laughs) we're not about to do is that. But then also having to deal with being in meetings where you're dealing with retired generals Mm -hmm. and all of these high-ranking military officials and other people And then you come in there as this 27-year-old black woman with a PhD trying to tell them, yeah, this isn't going to work and here's what you should do. And everyone's looking at you like, well, why are you not taking notes? Who are Mm. you? Right? Yeah. Um, So there's that piece. The biggest piece for me was that I had started kind of engaging with people at Howard University uh, because I was living closer into D.C. and Arlington and... I was always talking about going to graduate school and, oh, there's these jobs at the Aerospace Corporation. They'd never heard of it. And it's 30 minutes down the road. Are mm-hmm. you serious? Yeah. And so I went back to my de- my uh, department chair at the time or my manager. And I said, hey, you know, there's all of these students who are graduating in all fields of engineering at Howard and they don't know about Aerospace Corporation. Why are we not recruiting there, but we're recruiting at George Mason? Right. Hmm. And he literally said in the most unintentional way, well, I mean, we recruit at the good schools. So um, like the Virginia Techs, the George Mason, UVA. So, I mean, I guess Howard's just not as reputable. Are you serious? And he kind of shrugged it. And I looked like... Okay, so riddle me this. (laughs) If you recruited me from North Carolina State, why are you not recruiting at least from North Carolina A&T? Because they Mm -hmm. are nationally ranked and they're the second, probably arguably to some, the top engineering school in the state as well between them and NC State. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah, you do that. And so at the time... My best friend's cousin was on faculty at Howard Mm -hmm. in computer engineering, and they were already trying to get me to teach. um, I was going to come in as an adjunct and teach one course. My soon-to-be department chair, Lee Burge, at the time was talking to him and kept saying, see if you can get her to apply for the full-time position because they had a woman, a white woman, who was leaving, Mm -hmm. and he wanted to try to get a black woman in there because there had never been a black woman in 2005 on faculty at Howard University in computer science. And I kept saying, "Uh, I don't know if I want to do full-time. But when that conversation happened, I was already at a point that I knew I'm not going to stay here. And so for me, it was, do I take the leap and see what it's like to be in higher ed? Or do I stay somewhere where I don't like the people I'm working with? The stuff I'm doing, I could take or leave. But the bigger thing is I'm not happy here. The culture wasn't a good thing. Absolutely. And so I uh, drove into D.C. and I found Lee and I said, hey, is that position still open? Because I'd like to interview and apply for that. And he said, yes, please. (laughs) And the rest was history. And I and I didn't even tell my manager until uh, I signed a signing bonus. And so I started maybe like (laughs) August 5th and I had to stay a year or I would have to pay back like relocation, signing bonus, all of that. So I waited until August 6th, just to be sure, a year and a day, and handed him my two-week notice. Nice. And he looked, and he's like, you're leaving? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, is it? what's the reason? And I said, remember that conversation when I asked you about recruiting at Howard? And he said, yeah. 
And he says, yeah. And I looked into North Carolina A&T, and you're right. They, they do have a strong program. And I said, yeah, but what you failed to realize is that when we had that conversation, that showed me that you failed to look any further than North Carolina State on my resume. Because had you looked, you would have seen that I went to a small private HBCU called mm-hmm. Johnson C. Smith. And it is not ranked in terms of computer science anywhere near at the time Howard or A&T. And so you showed me that only because of the North Carolina State on my resume that I was qualified. And I I don't want to be anywhere where you're not willing to give uh, black college grads a fair shot. And he was so shocked. But he had to respect it. Mm -hmm. Told y'all she'd be snatching edges. (laughs) (laughs) And it was odd to me because I remember he told whoever the VP was. At the time that they had to, he had to let them know I was leaving and why. And I got a call from the VP in El Segundo. And they said, you know, my manager explained what happened or your manager explained what happened. You know, I really hate to hear you go. I'd love to work with you since you're going to Howard now to um, try to develop a better partnership and get some students in here. And I said, with all due respect, absolutely not. Mm. I will not start sending students here knowing this is the culture. Y'all get it right, and then we can talk. Mm. And they said, I have to respect that. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you didn't go to an HBCU. Some might say the HBCU. The Mecca. (laughs) (laughs) And then... Now, are you at an HBCU? No, I am not. Okay. But let them tell it. Some of the students down there claim it's kind of like an HBCU. No, and I there's say, no such oh, no, thing. No, boo, that's cute. But <laughs> that's what cute. you're not going to do is that. Okay, yeah. so you enjoyed that experience. At Howard? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Howard, I tell people the best years of my life from 96 to date have been when I was at an HBCU. So undergrad and Howard, mm, right? Wow. They were amazing. Um, my, I was never a person who thought I would go into academia and nobody who knew me did because one, I don't have any patience and <laughs> I still don't. Um, but more so, it was this, teaching was just never like on my radar. So mm. when I finished graduate school, like most computer scientists, we're like, oh, we're going to go get paid, get make job. some money. Right. <laughs> right? But I realized, one, I'm a talker. So I like being in front of people. But two, I liked working with students and particularly working with students who looked like me. Mm -hmm. And so my goal at Howard was that when I was an undergrad in my department, I never had a black professor, even though I attended an HBCU. Mm -hmm. So I went to Howard under the guise that I want to make sure that other black women there see themselves in me because I didn't need it at Smith because I had it at home. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it was amazing. Uh, It was an amazing nine years. My department chair was great. He was kind of like the, he gave me carte blanche. I told Kyla in the car, you know, Lee was awesome. We did not always see eye to eye. So there were times, but we operated so much like a tag team that we had to respect each other, right? We would butt heads, but then we'd be over it in like 30 minutes. Like, where are you going for lunch? Let's go. (laughs) Um, My students were amazing because they understood the why behind what I was doing. So I would push them and I would have these conversations when their slip was hanging, right? They Mm -hmm. would all bomb the midterm and I'd pull them in and I'm like, this is our come to Jesus moment. These students and these faculty over at University of Maryland at Georgetown, they think you're over here at Howard because you can't get in over there. Mm -hmm. And when you're failing like this and not showing up, you are proving them right. 
And so what I'm trying to tell you is that your slip is hanging. You need to gather yourself, go home and do some soul searching and figure out, is this really what you want to do? And if it is, you need to figure out how you're going to fix this. And a lot of them understood that. Um, And I'm grateful because I could see their growth and maturity. And I get to see even now to this date, I keep in touch with so many of my Howard students that it's amazing to feel like, because first of all, I still think I'm 27. So I'm not even understanding how they are <laughs> seven, 10 years into a career with kids and married. Um, but it's good to see that progression. Like one of my Howard students just got married a couple of weeks ago in Charlotte and he um, invited me to the wedding. Oh, and nice. one of my other Howard students was his best man. And so there's all of these dynamics and relationships that I wouldn't have had had I not been a part of an HBCU world on the faculty side. And then it was dope. It was Howard. (laughs) Right? You're in D.C. You're in the middle of D.C. in the Mecca. Um, Howard homecomings are amazing. Believe the hype. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was even better to have parking (laughs) on the day of Yard Fest. So, um, but it's just, it was a phenomenal nine years. And I feel like everything I am today is because of that experience professionally at Howard. It wasn't because of the Aerospace Corporation. It wasn't. It was because of that experience. It was because Lee Bird said you should probably think about applying for the full time position. And when I got there, everything I wanted to do, he was like, "Go for it. I got you." That's awesome. So Nikki, you were instrumental in the creation of the Google in Residence program. So for everyone who doesn't know what that is, can you talk about what it is and how it came about? Yeah, so the Google in Residence program was an effort to bring black Googlers to Howard. It originated at Howard as part of a program we were working on to retain students in the major in their first two years. Um, We ended up partnering with them first to do what we thought would be virtual chat sessions. And then they said, oh, no, we can, you know, provide a person there for a whole academic year. And we're like, oh, great. So it started with Charles Pratt in his first year and moved to Sabrina Williams in the second year. But they spent the entire academic year as an instructor on campus. Uh, They taught the intro course and then some other electives. And they worked with students on interview prep, other workshops that they thought would help, and just were a resource and representation of what it would be in Silicon Valley for a black person. That's awesome. That is amazing. Yeah. So it expanded to about five schools in year two, including Spelman, Morehouse, Hampton, uh, Tennessee State, or Fisk, one of those. And I think those were the other uh, schools. And I'm not sure how many there are now, but from that, uh, it's blossomed even now into the tech exchange program. It started as Howard West out there, mm-hmm. and then it opened up to – uh, students from all minority-serving institutions. Cool. That is really, really cool. So how did you get involved in it? So I'm not a part of Howard West. That kind of started after I left. But with the uh, Google in Residence program, we'd established a partnership early on with Google. So there was a middle school project where um, Google funded that for us to teach a full curriculum to the middle school students on campus. That's awesome. Through the education arm. So we had some great connections. Oh, so like Howard has a school, right? Howard has a middle school on campus. And um, they were interested in a computer science curriculum and at the same time I had met Tara Canobio who was with Google Education at the time Mm -hmm. and Tara and I became really good friends but she was also looking to fund some programs that would be focused on K-12 education so Harvard was one 
and Google was the other one for this uh, Inspired by Kate program. Oh. And they funded us for a year, gave us equipment, and myself, Lee, and three students taught a full academic year at the Howard University Middle School of Math and Science for 126 through 8th graders. Wow. In addition to wow. all Howard activities, right? And you so said there was you don't no have bio. patience? Child. Let me tell you, they tried it. That that was the test. And it, and it wasn't even the students weren't as bad as the parents. Yep. Wow. They're always the worst because part of it. let me tell you, my dad was a K-12 administrator, so when it started, he just started laughing. I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And every year, I would call him on my way to work, and then mm. I'd call him on my way home. He's like, what happened today? I mean, it was... It was so bad. One time, there was a grandmother I remember who tried it. It was it was a mess. Uh, the one grandmother <laughs> at this parent teacher conference just decided that she was going to go off, and all of the other teachers are looking. And I had to tell her, "Look, here, lady, let me tell you something. <laughs> I have been Doctor Washington for about five years now, but I've been Nikki for about thirty three. Mm-hmm. And what you are not going to do is talk to me any kind of way. So." It's you can have this how you want, but we can take this outside. But it's always is, the black grandmothers, too. Is what it? are they mad about, though? Because y'all are bringing a Life. service to them that they would not otherwise have. Life. I think later when the, because the dean of students had to come and pull her out. Mm-hmm. Um, she was upset. At that point, there was just a sign-off sheet of, like, internet safety rules. Mm-hmm. And her student didn't bring it back, her granddaughter. Oh. And she kept going off about, you can't give her something because, uh, give her a grade because I didn't sign something. Kind of, I can yeah, because I can. everybody else signed it. And she's a well, minor. I just didn't feel like signing it. And so then it really came out that she felt inadequate and like she failed her child because she didn't do something, but she didn't know how to process and handle that correctly. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was a lot. So you over here having play referee with the kids and with the parents and therapists and counseling, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Wow. I salute all my K-12 educators because it takes a level of patience (laughs) that I don't have. Mm -mm. I would restructure the payment system because they need all of the monies for what they go through. All of it. Not what my spirit was made for. Mm -mm. No. God knows. Mm -mm. (laughs) That's not my ministry at all. I know it. (laughs) So, Okay. You had a wonderful time at Howard, mm-hmm. but you ain't at Howard. No. I know. I don't know. It's, well, it's well, okay. Well. Right. Yeah, I left uh, on great terms only because my dad died. And uh, the summer that my dad died, I spent that entire summer in the hospital working on things uh, to make sure that my grad students Funding was in place. We were getting ready to launch our exploring computer science training for D.C. public schools. Wow. And so I just had all of these things going on. And it was so frustrating to sit in the hospital bedside and have to keep stepping out to call Howard to make sure this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And I just wanted to make sure it was okay because I knew if if it was me, I would want someone, my advisor, to make sure I was getting paid. Mm Because I knew that my students couldn't eat if they didn't get their checks. Um. And so the weekend it was getting ready to start, that Saturday, we were all in the hospital. And my dad said, just go home. I know you got this stuff. I'll be here. And then I left. I kept saying, are y'all sure? And they said, yeah, you can come back next weekend. I left on a Saturday evening. On Sunday evening, my mom called and said, "Um, your dad wants to talk to you. And Mm. he literally got on the phone and he said, I love you and I need you to let me go. Mm. I'm tired and... I can't do this. I just need you to promise me that you're going to be okay. And I lost it. But what could I say? I'm like, okay, I promise. And then I hung up. 
I was a wreck that night, but I got up the next morning and we were supposed to start this program. And like I was telling Kyla, I called my mom that day and she was like, oh, he's having a great day. He's really upbeat and energetic. And I said, this is going to be the day. Mm. And sure enough, we were taking a break doing the training. And God bless Gail Chapman from Exploring Computer Science. She's everything to me. Um, She's leading the training. Lee and I stepped out and we're sitting in his office and the phone rings. And he looks at the caller ID and he says, 919. Isn't your phone number 919? And I instinctively knew and just grabbed the phone. And it was my mom crying, calling. She was trying to call him to tell him my dad passed, but I need you to pull her out and separate her to make sure she's okay. And so it was just a crazy day. I was like, I got to go. I got to go. And she kept saying, um, don't get on the road today. My mm-hmm. godmother was there with her. Um, and so she was like, I'm Okay. I'll be here, you know, just calm yourself down. And she kept saying, I didn't try to get through the week. And I said, I can't stay here the week. Right. And so um, she had called Lee back and everyone kept trying to make sure I was okay. And then finally, Lee and even Galen and just said, just go home, pack up and go home, um, go home, home. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I, I just kept going and I never processed losing my dad. Mm. And so when you don't deal with grief, it's going to make you deal with it eventually. Mm-hmm. And so if that was July... By November, I, like, we buried my dad late August. I was home a couple of weeks to make sure my mom was okay. I went back home to D.C. the Sunday before classes started, and I went right back into everything. And by November, I spiraled. Mm-hmm. And I just had a complete breakdown. And my mother was like, pack up. It was com- it was going into Thanksgiving. So I had my grad students lead a couple of my classes, and I just went home, and I just said, I've got to do something different. If I stayed at Howard, I was so engrossed in the work. It was my refuge, and it was my way to detract. And I said, one, I needed to be closer to my mom. And I kept telling people at the time, because I'm an only child, you know, I was the only person looking out for her. She was fine. I wasn't. And so when people, when I would tell people that they thought it was under the guise of, I need to make sure she's good. No, I needed to make sure I was good. And so for me, um, relocating put me back in Charlotte. I knew that if I ever needed her to, my mom was never going to live in DC. Mm -hmm. She would live in Charlotte because both my parents went to Johnson C. Smith as well. And she has her own set of friends and life there. Um, But it's two hours from Durham. Easy. And so I took a position at Winthrop, um, knowing that it put me closer to my mom and that there was also an opportunity to possibly work on some CS education stuff because education was their flagship. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's beautiful that you made that sacrifice, first of all, for your mom, but really and truly for yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, your career is important, but if you don't exist, what's the point of a career? Right. Right. And it was hard. Like, I had a well-oiled machine going. Um, and it was kind of like, why leave that? And I kept saying, because I, I just had to choose me. Mm. Yep. Right? Even talking to the provost now at Winthrop, she's like, yeah, I'm curious. Why did you leave Howard? And I said, I, I explained the same thing. And it's, you know, because the work is so, pa- you're so passionate about mm-hmm. it. And you're so mm-hmm. into it. And it's so easy to stay. But I was like, it's killing me. I've got to detach from this. Um, as much as possible and the only way I could see it happening was to just really leave and gather myself and I kept thinking if I want to come back I could because there are other faculty in the College of Engineering who left and you know they'd worked in industry or gone to the government and come back but I I just knew I I needed a break yeah like you said you chose you yeah yeah well I think 
like I said, I think that's really admirable that you even thought to make that choice because some people will just run themselves into the ground, right? right? And then burn out and never go back. Yeah, or spiral, lash out at other people, yeah. and treat their students terribly yeah. as a result. Yeah, um, yeah. So, okay, you made this transition into education, CS education, mm-hmm. and you're doing that now. Still, you're very active in mm-hmm. that community because I see you everywhere. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> and my background is in like engineering education yep, yep, now. Yep. So CS and engineering ed are really trying to make strides in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space right yep. now. And I know that that's something that you're extremely passionate about. I mean, obviously, choosing to go work at an HBCU and now leading those efforts from uh, a small teaching college that's predominantly white, you're still doing that work. So Mm -hmm. how do you feel we're doing? Yeah. Where do you what is the state of diversity, equity and inclusion in computing? Uh, My honest assessment is it is still very dismal. Hmm. And I don't feel like the needle is going to move the way it should until some serious changes are made at the higher education level. Yeah, um, we can but keep. Talk- isn't computer science for everyone? Uh, yeah, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> um, and and yeah. but that's the thing, you know. There's so much great work happening at the K through 12 level. It is. It's yeah. amazing work. The problem is. When those students get to those universities, Mm -hmm. what happens when they deal with those professors like the ones I had who told Mm -hmm. me that they didn't think I could cut it because I was some young black girl from a school they'd never heard of? And if those other young black girls, young Latina girls or Latinx boys, if they don't have that fortitude to say, I'm going to do it anyway, yeah. Or they don't have the resources like I had, like a mom or a village who could pour into them, then they are going to quickly get deterred. And the problem is all of that hard work that's being done at the K-12 level is going to be for naught when they cross into the university because they'll either change their majors or they'll get so disillusioned after they don't pass a course one or two times that they just decide forget it with school or forget it with the major. Yeah. And so a lot of my argument is, We need to be focusing on teaching people how to be inclusive, right? Because there's this assumption that everyone gets it. No, they don't, right? We saw in Charlottesville that Mm -hmm. there's a whole generation of young people who clearly have issues with race as well as gender, but definitely race. So if we're not teaching diversity, equity, and inclusion, then how do we expect them to, again, get to an industry and for them to say, you know what? I'm going to stop being biased. Right. And I'm I'm actually going to acknowledge that I am biased. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. So my argument and a lot of my research is pivoted based on my personal experiences since I've been at Winthrop into cultural competence in computing mm-hmm. and making sure, you know, I was already working on identity in computing, but cultural competence is really born out of social work and psychology. Mm-hmm. And it was born 30 years ago. So there are... It's a requirement for people who work in fields that deal with vulnerable populations. Yep. Oh, that's right. So education, healthcare, social work. So why are we not requiring that same level of cultural competence here? Because the argument can be made that uh, all of these marginalized groups are vulnerable populations in computing. Yep. We look at it every day with the biases that exist in all of these algorithms from hospital care to criminal justice yep. system, all of these other issues. We are a vulnerable population and no one is teaching not only 
how to address the biases in the departments and organizations on a personal level, but how those biases impact the technologies they're then developing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my research now pivots around that. And um, I created an assessment that helps measure cultural competence across the six scales that the person who coined the term cross um, in 1989 that he used, which ranged from uh, cultural destructiveness, which was basically white supremacy, homophobia, all of these issues, up to cultural proficiency. Mm. And mm. and it and in addition, I'm trying to push to get every university to require some sort of three credit hour course around race, gender, class, and computing. So that's a course mm, that I have great. under works for Winthrop right now. That's great. I love it. But I would really want it to be a requirement because people try to argue, well, we have ethics already as a requirement. Ethics doesn't do it. Ethics yeah. is talking about cybersecurity and digital right. privacy and all of these things. IP, nothing that's dealing with the issues that are non-technical that every student is either impacted by or impacting. Um, and also faculty. Because if you start requiring that course, then that means that faculty have to now be qualified to teach it. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. you can't have all of these biases and then turn around and try to teach a course where you're supposed to be talking about equity and inclusion right. for all. And, and it really, and I purposely titled it those because it's not just about race. It's not just about gender. Right. It includes uh, your sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. It includes um, people with disabilities and making sure that everyone feels like they belong and that everyone feels like their needs are being met and that they are a part of the solution and not just considered part of the problem. So um, nice. I'm hoping that that goes through. I actually I'm presenting. I got a position paper except it's a 60. So that should be nice. interesting. Ooh, yeah. I can't nice. wait. Cause I'm hoping and tweeting that one of those reviewers shows up so that I can <laughs> uh, have a nice little slide for him or her. Yeah. So in light of like all these DNI efforts and trying to get like faculty and people to be on board, you and I were at a conference where we were at a table and we were talking about, you know, resources for African-American students from IMCS and this girl has the nerve at the table <laughs> to say, one, you know, we were talking about the guidelines and and the guidelines are made for just being able to successfully mentor African-American students. And first she called them basic or was like, oh, people know this. And then she tried to say that these kinds of efforts will reverse racism and how at her school that the Nesby chapter that she really wanted to interact with, they, I guess, didn't give her enough attention. She was a non-student of color, but she was basically accusing them of a reverse racism. And I'm like, where do you come from with this? Like, how do we get those people on board when it comes to that? Like, I was so glad I was at the other <laughs> yeah, table. I'm so glad they made us break up because if the three of us had been <laughs> yeah. I just kept looking like, is this really happening? And are we just going to gloss over this? Okay. Nope. I'm not. Yeah. Um, Those guidelines are my baby. Yeah. Yeah. It was very insulting. It was just like, well, I mean, these are all pretty generic. Or you're just probably looking at it from a skewed lens. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to get people like that. Uh, to see those things in a way that I want to react, which is very much, first of all, let me tell you this. Right. Right. So <laughs> what I tried to do, and I'm not sure if I succeeded, was try to explain to her how problematic, how 
the way that she was interpreting things could be off-putting to those people, right? Because she kept saying, "Well, I, I want, I show up to Nesby meetings, and they don't want to include me, and they're clickish, and it's like reverse racism." And I said, "Well, if you think about this, if you walk into a situation and you are expected to be treated like a guest and catered to, this is already a safe space for them, and this is the only safe space they feel like they have. And right. you coming here having demands now puts them on defense instead of walking in and saying, "Hey, I would really." like to be a part of your group is there any way that i could work with you guys and they'd probably be a little more understanding um yeah rather than oh where is my red carpet right right i'm not a person who knows how to always polish what i say and so i tend to shoot from the hip um and i feel like a lot of times people like that it's not gonna be people like us that get through to them it's going to be people who look like them mm. right mm-hmm. um that's why we need advocates right yes, definitely right? and right. people who are on our side who understand right. like our viewpoint because right. and who actually are listening to us because yeah. right. she came in there with an opinion right right and was not willing to move first and I panel think, first session you know right. first question and i think <laughs> it was even more problematic for me because it was a conference around celebrating right. diversity and right. computing which goes back to all of the points i argue that diversity and inclusion is relative right so for a lot of people, and let's be honest, because this goes into my whole lean in conversation for a lot of people, especially white women and other women of color who are not black necessarily. Diversity only is about gender or mm-hmm. especially for white women. They're only looking at gender because they are already in the dominant race. Right. Right. But even within women of color. It can be very hard to get other people who are not black to understand our experiences because one if we fight for diversity equity inclusion by default everybody else gets it if we get it everybody else gets it automatically but it doesn't work the same way um, the opposite way right it doesn't trickle down just because they're more inclusive of women doesn't mean they're going to account for black look at the women's suffrage movement exactly exactly and every other issue you know and that was one of the big things i had or the big issues i had with lean in you know it's this whole you just got to be assertive and confident yeah, but here's the thing about that, Cheryl. Yeah. So at the end of the day, when I'm confident, I'm called arrogant. Mm-hmm. And when I'm assertive, I'm called rude and mean and disrespectful. Right. And so the rules and don't those apply. those are the nice words. Right. right. Those are the words they say in front of your face. Exactly. So we have to stop acting like, um, you know, all women are equal because we're not treated equally. And so just fighting for the gender piece negates the fact that I am a black woman, right? right? I have this intersecting identity and I have these issues that are specific to me. Latino women, Native American women have issues that are specific to them. Mm -hmm. And it does a disservice to each and every one of us to act like we all check off one box by saying, okay, well, we hired two women. Right. Yeah, and that's my issue with a lot of women in technology groups where it's like they take sort of an all lives matter approach to things. Like, oh, if we do things for every woman, then everybody's helped. And it's like, no, you're definitely negating every other identity that any woman has, you know. Yep. Uh, One of my favorite things about you, Nikki, is you post a lot of (laughs) stories, articles, comments, and things about... Let me tell you what happened on the bus. Right. (laughs) Around these issues, right? And and you're not afraid to do it. But, I mean, 
Do you get a lot of backlash for doing that? No. Um, <laughs> if I if if people have issues with it, I don't know of it. Um, and I try to be very intentional in my posts um, where it's really hard to find a problem with it because it's the truth. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and my my opinions are based on my experience and what I've tried to do, especially with non-black people in my circles, um, whether they're followers or Facebook friends or Instagram followers, they are people who get it mm-hmm. and people who understand it. Um, and so for that, it allows me to speak my truth and they support it and say, you're right. I, I don't understand that experience, but I'm trying to be an advocate. So let me make sure that I'm doing my part. Um, one of the most beautiful things I've had ex- happen to me this semester was that um, I started doing extra credit. And I had that question about who directed oh, yeah. when I they see that. extra quest- credit question. Right. And it was so dope to me because, well, first of all, I had about six black men in my class. And I was so mm-hmm. mad that none of them got it right. But <laughs> it's another story. But the question was, who directed when they see us? And... Um, only one person got it close to being right. He said Alicia DuVernay, mm. but it was a white man. Wow. And so after that, when I came back and told them, you know, you really need to know these kinds of things because this is what's happening in the world. And I kind of mm-hmm. gave a high level version of what what the story was about. And one of them emailed me back and said, I really want to thank you for recommending that movie to me. I just spent the weekend watching it and I am floored that this is happening to people. And I know that I can never right all of the wrongs that are out there, but I want to at least do my part to understand and try to make the world better for the people I engage with. Wow. And I was like, wow. You never <laughs> this, know the people you touch right. just by an extra credit question. Right. But this is a young white man in South Carolina. Mm. Yeah. But here's the thing. You didn't just do, let me just write, uh, an extra credit question. Like you wrote a whole book yeah, for people to be able to reference around these stories. So yeah. talk to us about your book. What, what was the motivation and can you share anything about it that you feel like will drive people to want to yeah. pick it up and learn more? Yeah. So unapologetically dope. I tell people is my love letter to black women and girls. Yeah. And that's regardless of whether you're in the tech field or not. Um, it discusses nothing about computing <laughs> at all, but I wrote it under the guise of that, uh, being in the field because I am a black woman in computing. Um, It was born out of a conversation that was happening at the first Black Computer Fellows program. Mm -hmm. And I was there to help lead another session, but I just happened to be sitting in on this one. And there were all of these conversations amongst the fellows about their concerns regarding some issues that they had with marginalization and bias and imposter syndrome and how do I navigate this space? And I'm watching this and I'm like, Wow. You know, it was dawning on me how how important it was to have my mom there because these questions she could answer every time they Mm -hmm. happen. And I recognize that they didn't have that. So I'm trying, along with a couple of other peers, to provide these answers. Um, But then I said, there's nothing out here like that because the only book was Lean In. Mm -hmm. So why don't I put together a book with lessons that I've learned over the years that would help me? So all of the titles and all of the stories are about how you use them to navigate the tech space but still navigate life too. So assemble your tribe. There's five women you need to know how to have in your crew, right? There's the straight shooter, the cheerleader, the motivator, the sage, and the plug. I love right? it. Are, are you all five? I love no, it. I am. I am the say uh, the straight shooter though. Mm-hmm. Um, really? Right. I was never guessed that. <laughs> um, 
And then, for example, keep receipts. So I talk about mm-hmm. the importance of documentation and how I put had it to in na- writing. Yes. yes, and how I share all of these different experiences about how. Um, you know, even as a graduate student at State, I had this white woman who all of a sudden didn't want to send me my uh, pay stubs. And it was just a dramatic event. But I decided, since she was doing it in emails and rude phone calls, that I would email the head of HR, who was her boss. And sure enough, I'm living in Durham at the time, and it's 7 o'clock at night, and I get a ring on my doorbell, and there's this random white woman what? handing me a stack of pay stubs in tears. Wow. And I'm like, okay, thanks, wow. I guess. Um, But things like that, right? Like, don't be afraid to ask for help. Take care of your mental, emotional, and physical health. So I weave in all of these stories about my experiences. For example, uh, losing my dad. I talk about that in the emotional health and mental health space. Asking for help, I use this crazy story of the first time I went to uh, Turks and Caicos. And like I told y'all earlier, Mm -hmm. I travel by myself a lot. So I was there by myself. I was snorkeling on this boat. It was the only other black people on the boat were the people working. And the guys jumping in, you know, they're swimming like fish. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, I can do that. So Ooh. we had gone snorkeling, right? No, ma'am. I'm thinking, I can swim. No, ma'am. <laughs> right? And so uh, they allow us, after we snorkel, to kind of just hang out and award it as a slide. So everybody mm-hmm. was taking off their, their whatever thing. Yeah. Vest thing. So I decided to do it too. Now, I'm out of shape at the time. <laughs> it's hot. It's June. And we're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which is not a pool. No, it's not. And so I land in that water and I'm treading water. And within 10 seconds, I was like, yeah, this isn't going to go well. So I need to get back to that ladder. And it was literally not even 10 feet, but it felt like 10 miles. And I remember I was just like, in my head, I said, I cannot drown in front of these white people. (laughs) Like, I literally was saying that. And it's crazy. I laugh about it now. And my mother laughed about it. I said, how crazy is it that I... Right. I am literally about to die out here and one of these men is gonna are gonna have to jump in here to save me and I'm worried about how it looks to white people. I'm like, I know how to swim. I can't drown in front of all these white folks. You know what, Nikki? But it's that same thing and I I tell people, you know, we're always worried about how it looks to other Mm -hmm. people, particularly white folks in the field. Instead of asking for help. You are about to die. Literally. Literally. Wow. Because oh, you're scared wow. about how it looks. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so y'all get the book, because clearly <laughs> do. Uh, it's probably filled with some great gems. Oh, yes, I'm about to get it now. Cause Unapologetically I dope. I'm Lessons for black copies. women and girls. Yes. Okay. Um, okay, so let's wrap this up. Um, what is What is the answer to this? To the lack of diversity and inclusion, to... These racial incidents that just keep happening and the bias training is clearly not not helping. The, what what do we do? Those PowerPoints aren't working. No. The PowerPoints ain't cutting it, y'all. <laughs> no. Um, my honest answer is that until the overwhelming majority of white, specifically men and women in computing and in this country acknowledge and admit that what's happening is happening mm-hmm. and needs to change then we're going to keep chasing windmills. Um, In the tech space, the same goes, right? We we can't keep putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. And and it's like people want to do just enough to say they did it and check a box Mm -hmm. and and not actually deal with the hard truths. Because dealing with the truth means I have to deal with the fact that there are things that I say and do that are problematic. And that's uncomfortable. And Mm -hmm. nobody who is in that majority group a lot of times wants to be uncomfortable. 
Yeah, and they want to say, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Right. It's like, it's not about you being racist, but right. you benefit from a system that is set up. Absolutely. I had a conversation, a colleague, with my race, gender, computing class. He he didn't want to say it in front of the rest of the department, and I forced it. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, I'm just not comfortable with this class. And I said, you're not comfortable because you're a white man in the majority, and it's easy for you. But no major change in this country has ever happened because people decided to keep white folks comfortable. Mm-hmm. So you look at the civil rights movement, the suffrage movement, mm-hmm. right? Um, what, Occupy Wall Street, yep. if it worked, you know, questionable. Um, <laughs> right, LGBTQ rights. Yep. There are all of these things that happened because people said enough and we are going to challenge the status quo and disrupt. And so for me... I consider myself a disruptor. So I I agitate, I disrupt, and you'll be all right. (laughs) Straight shooter, y'all. I love it. (laughs) Just straight out the pocket. All right. So I'm happy. I'm happy. Thank you (laughs) for having me. This is ending. Oh, my gosh. This is amazing. I know we could probably talk for another 10 hours. This is amazing. I cannot believe... I mean, thank you for going so deep. Thank you. um, And being so transparent with us because... I'm, it's hard sometimes to get people to open up about mm-hmm. really deep stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. we talked about loss, and I know that's yeah. really tough, but Thank you've you. healed from that. And I, it's a beautiful tribute to him. To yeah. be able to talk about it and help other people Absolutely. move forward. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank yes. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. How do people find you? Because they need to keep up with you and all of your... <laughs> I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere. <laughs> as all my DC folks say. Um, I am, well, the website, NikkiWashington.com, N-I-C-K-I. Um, I am on Twitter, what, Dr. Underscore Nikki W. Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook is just Dr. Nikki W. N-I-C-K-I-W. I'm everywhere. Find me. Everybody <laughs> enjoys my social media. I'm oh like, my I, gosh, I, I love that I, y'all get pleasure out of my pain. It's so like a TV you. show for me. <laughs> Look, sometimes I contribute to the pain. You do. You do, yeah. Jeremy. I appreciate it. Kyla, uh, Kyla oh, as yeah. well. Yeah, she yeah, co-signs so hard. I'll be like, yeah, I bet they won't. Right. <laughs> I wish they would. Y'all just don't know. We we over here tripping on Twitter especially. Yes. I think oh, yeah. Twitter is probably the primary space, so definitely follow her there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, y'all. I appreciate it. I had a ball. <laughs> As always, you can find us on our website at modernfigurespodcast.com, where you can also purchase items from our online store. Send us questions via email at askus at modernfigurespodcast.com. The podcast is also on social media. Just search for Modern Figures Podcast. And you can find Kyla and I on Twitter. Kyla is at Dr. Underscore Kyla. And I'm at Jeremy Wesa. Until, Until next time, time, stay hydrated, moisturized, and, and protect, protect your peace. peace.